Take your Bibles out and turn with me to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John 3, and I'm going to read one verse back to what y'all covered yes, or last Sunday, and that'll be verse 18, and then we're going to read through to the end of the chapter. So 1 John chapter 3, verses 18 through to the end. I can't tell you the last verse because I don't have my glasses on here yet. 21. I'm sorry, no, 24. Here we go. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. So let's go to the Lord once more in prayer as we dive into this text. And we will ask for the Spirit to just help us to discern this this morning and teach us. And God, we come to you in asking that your favor and your blessing would be granted to us as we go into your word and that you would just prepare our hearts for the hearing of it, Lord, for the instruction from it. And as you infuse these truths into our lives by your Holy Spirit, I pray that we be those who are called to keep your commandments and also called to do your commandments. And that would be exhibited in the way we live out our Christian walk here on this earth. God, thank you just for the presence that you give us by the abiding of your Holy Spirit within each and every one of us who call you Lord and who know you as our Heavenly Father. And for those who are here today that cannot truly discern whether they know you, uh, they have no assurance of their salvation, that God, through your truth today, that you would just begin to work these things into their hearts and out of their lives so that they either know and are affirmed in their salvation, but Father, if they are not, that God, they are convicted and they are drawn to you, Lord, in a saving way. And we pray that you would just work as you as already, already intended to do here for the glory of your name, for the sake of your kingdom. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we are going to focus on verses 19 through to the end of that chapter. And one of the things I just wanted to bring out is that you know, we should know who we belong to. And this walk through 1 John has been this evaluation for us or this acid test for whether or not our salvation is real. And coming now from this study of love, which is kind of the primary focus of what Ray taught on last week and the different types of love that we see that are defined in the Greek language that we only know as love. And the love that we're focusing on, which is primarily expressed in the Bible, that is the expression of God towards us, is this agape type of love that we have from our Heavenly Father. We realize that it is not just any kind of love that we are addressing here in 1 John, but it is a agape kind of love, the love that can only be had in a relationship with God. We are only able to love this way because of the one who first loved us and gave himself up for us so that we might have eternal life with him, that hope of heaven, so that we might have the enabler of this love, and that is the Holy Spirit. And being enabled by his presence within us, we can love as he loves us. 
Now, ours will not be a perfect love like his is, but we want to see a striving towards a demonstration of this love to others. And it should be seen in our treatment of others, and especially to the ones that are not easy to love. That is the test of this agape love. We can know that it is a love from him within us when this love overcomes the challenges of difficult personalities. I'll just put it that way. Or even our own selfish flesh. And this love loves in spite of those many obstacles that could come against this love. I believe it's C.S. Lewis that said this. It is easier to be enthusiastic about humanity with a capital H than it is to love individual men and women, especially those who are uninteresting, exasperating, depraved, or otherwise unattractive. Loving everybody in general may be an excuse for loving nobody in particular. And I think that rings true because how easy it is for us um, to say that we love everybody in general as Christians. I, I just have a love for everybody. We have this general love for everyone. But when it comes down to an individual and on that level is where the test of that love comes in. And verse 18 kind of left us off there with how we are to demonstrate this love. Not just giving it lip service, not just saying that we love someone or love an individual, but letting the actions that are expressed within us speak of the love that we have in us. Loving indeed and in truth is what verse 18 said that you studied last week. And if we are living out this kind of love in our lives, then verse 19 provides the assurance that we are of him, that we are a child of the one who loves us and works out this love within us so that it is expressed outwardly in the way that we treat others. And what John says is in verse 19, by this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. By loving in this way, we can know that we are of the truth. And he is the truth, that we are of him. As Ray stated last week, we can only love this way genuinely and consistently if he is in us by the presence of his Holy Spirit. Him in us means that it is being done in truth. It is not just a show like you you go to a conference and you get all emotionally excited about something, but then you leave the love there when you walk away from that emotional experience and then you only pick it back up again when you go and, and you have that experience again. It's not that kind of love that we're talking about here. This is agape love, and it is there even when the challenges and even when the struggles come. It is there even when the emotions fade and we don't feel like loving, yet we love anyway. It doesn't even have to be reciprocated in order for us to love like this because it is being generated by Him. He is the source of it, and He is the truth behind it. If we had time to plunge the depths of John chapter 17, the gospel of John chapter 17, um, we would probably have a multi-day study there, but let's just look at part of it and kind of use this as an overlay to what we're reading in verse 19. I'll read verse 19 of 1 John chapter 3 here, and then we'll go to first, or sorry, gospel of John chapter 17 and look at uh, verse 9. Okay, so verse 19 of our study today, by this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. So we're keeping that in the background here. Now go to John 17, verse 9. Jesus says, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but those whom you have given me, for they are yours. 
All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. So this is Jesus' prayer to his heavenly Father. And so he's made clear here that this prayer, this is for those who are believers. This is for those who are the children of God. The world is not going to be able to enact this kind of love that we're talking about today because they don't know him and they are not known by him. But this is what Jesus says of those who are children of God. Look at verse 17 now of John 17. Something very simple, sim, sim, simple, sorry, simple and straightforward. It says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So as Jesus makes intercession for us, he is asking that we be sanctified in the truth. And the truth is the word, the word of God. Sanctifying We've brought it up here many times, probably every Sunday that we've been in First John, because it, it is something that is very pertinent to um, the entire letter, but sanctifying is the continual process that he does in us, a cleansing by his truth, a growing in his truth, a producing of holiness in our lives, making us more and more into his image. God's word is truth. Jesus himself is called the word, and in him is truth. There is no lie. There is no error in God. And we also know, and I hope we teach it continually here from this pulpit, that his word, that the scriptures are his truth to us. And by them, he sanctifies us. As the Holy Spirit teaches our heart with the Scriptures, and even right now, I hope, as His Holy Word is teaching us that it is an enriching us and growing us in His wisdom, which is Christ in us. And we use that as that overlay, as I mentioned, to verse 19 of 1 John. As we see this love that He produces in us is going to be coupled with truth. It is how we know we are loving rightly, and that love is doing something it is ministering to others. It is bringing hope into other people's lives through the sharing of the gospel and the advancement of his kingdom. And he says, by this, we shall know that we are of the truth. The very thing we are being sanctified in. By this, we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. Now, I hope you're there in John chapter 17 still because there's still more to that. Going to verse 25 and 26 now of John 17. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I may known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. There is assurance for us in this. Jesus has made known his name, and not just a, a one-time thing. He continues to make it known. He says he has made known his name and continues to make it known. And he will not fail in that. This love that we have is from him. This is what Jesus asks of the Father for us. That we have the same love with which the Father loves him. That that love would be in us. That really puts a whole new meaning, I think, on this kind of love. This agape love. When you think on how the Father loved his Son and loves his son, and that is the same love indwelling our hearts by the presence of his Holy Spirit, you should find in you the capacity, certainly the capacity to love in this way. You shouldn't say, well, that's just an impossibility for me. So if it is an impossibility for you to love that way, that, that's an evaluation of whether you really are in the truth or not. So there's a check for us there. But 
by his presence, we have the capacity to love in this way. Now, it's not going to be a perfect love like his is and, and be continual throughout our lives that we're going to be able to love this way, but it definitely should be a pattern of your this enablement of love within you. All right, so I think we're, we're done with John chapter 17. <laughs> so now let's uh, look at verse 20 of John, 1 John chapter 3. You know, where there are going to be times in, where our hearts, you know, our thoughts are going to be in a totally different space. And that is where John is going to go now. We could be looking at our lives and saying, just, just condemning of ourselves, saying, I'm just not able to really muster up this love, feeling like it's all on, our, on us and that we have to muster up this effort somehow to love someone this way. And it can lead us into this place of condemnation. And in verse 20, John writes, For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. So what does this mean? That our heart condemns us. Some of you can probably speak from experience. You know what this means. You've, you've been doing this or you've done it to yourself. And so here's what I think it means and just you know, bear, keep that in mind. It's what Owen thinks. And I think we have some good scripture support for it, but I must admit that I find it challenging sometimes to want to speak on this aspect of assurance of salvation. But that's the text I've been given this morning. (laughs) Um, And you might say, well, how how can you find it difficult to teach on that? So I'm going to just couch that just for a little bit, couch these verses. We'll come back to them just in a moment, but I want to tell you why sometimes I have the, the difficulty in kind of expressing this or or teaching on it like I should because I think it comes from an experience of being in churches, part of movements that are on this end of the spectrum that we would call easy believism because I felt like I may have given in that time, that season of my life, I may have been giving people a false assurance of salvation to those that really weren't saved, that maybe just had an experience or an emotional moment at a particular event, and it is that attachment to that emotion or that event and experience, and that was what they thought they were saved by when it really wasn't a salvation, a real salvation. And so I think some of it comes from that, um, the thought of that that makes me sometimes maybe tamp down my teaching on the security of a true believer and what we find in Scripture, but it is in Scripture. We find it there for us, and we, want, we don't want to pass it over as if it is not there. And that is my baggage, and I don't want to bring it into this and mute this joy that is ours in knowing that we are saved, that we are saved by God. And then there are those who I would say are on the opposite side of the spectrum, that you know, maybe like me, want to shy away from any talk of security of the believer in their salvation, but maybe do so in such a way that they would even um, refuse to, to take the Lord's Supper. Um, they would refuse to, 
you know, be, be part of a, a fellowship because they are just so condemning towards themselves. It is like this paralysis of analysis that goes on continually in their lives as they come to the scripture and rather than just letting it convict and seek forgiveness and you know, repent of that and continue your walk in the Lord, they are just overwhelmed. There's a constantly condemning heart upon themselves and upon others. And we can sometimes get into that mode of operation. And the other end of that spectrum is the one I always, you know, kind of shy away from, and I would say is probably more prevalent in the churches today, and that is thinking everyone in the church is saved. You know, even me being up here talking to you, I'm not going to assume that every one of you is saved. And I, I shouldn't, because if I assume everyone is saved, then that might then kind of squash things then my message that need to be delivered the truth and that's why we want to continually share the gospel because we do not know even among those who seem to be walking in the truth I've seen men you know fall to their knees crying out for the mercy of God who you would think had been saved for 40 or 50 years in their life so we don't want to shrink back from that but you, this spectrum, this one side that I'm talking about is those that would attach things like walking down the aisle at the church as being the thing that saved them, um, that maybe it was a special prayer that they prayed, uh, maybe it was just joining the church, maybe it was actually getting up and being baptized and observing that physical act as the means by which they were saved. And we could go, we can make this list of many things. They took the Lord's Supper, you know, maybe they had a really good uh, spiritual conversation with somebody and everything is going back to that experience and looking on their decision as what saved them and not looking at Jesus and Jesus being the one who saved us and rescued us from our sin. So here is what the Holy Spirit writes uh, through John. Verse 20 now of 1 John 3, For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. Well, I said I was going to couch that, which is why I wanted to bring those verses back up. But look at Hebrews 4 with me for a moment as we understand these two verses that we just read. Hebrews 4, and we're going to look at two verses there, verses 12 and 13. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the vision of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Among many other things, God uses his word to convict us of sin. But I want to be sure that I make a distinction between the word conviction and the word condemned. I think we have to make a separation between the two words. Conviction is necessary. It is necessary to bring us to confession and repentance. And we should desire conviction. You know, we go into his word for one reason so that it can convict our hearts. It can pierce and divide and expose to us sin that needs to be brought out and confessed before him because he knows all things. He knows your heart. He knows when there's unconfessed sin there that needs to be brought to light and confessed before him. So conviction is necessary. 
And that is something that we should desire as his children. And if we should be checking our thoughts and intentions of our heart, as Hebrews chapter 4 says here, and when God changes our heart, we are made aware of our sin, and that makes us sorry for that sin. Now that's, that's conviction. We are grieved by it because we know that God is grieved by our sin, and so we come to him confessing it and asking for his strength and his help to overcome it. And I think sometimes for a true believer, though, we get so bound up in the guilt of our sin for which we've already sought forgiveness that we cannot let it go. And it sits like a cloud over our hearts, constantly condemning us, though that condemnation is not actually coming from God, but it's really coming from us. Kind of that self-judgment and not letting the thing go that we have already asked for forgiveness for, wanting to maybe inflict some self-imposed kind of punishment upon ourselves. And we brought up Martin Luther before, you know, he nailed the 95 treaties on the wall that he was flogging himself, you know, before he really understood God's grace. And that it's almost like that self-condemnation that we can get into the mode of here when we think about our sin before God, even when we have already confessed it before him. Our sins have been forgiven. And yes, we need to be convicted and we need to confess our sins before God. And there's that sense in which we should have an awareness of that condemnation, right? Because the condemnation is what was for us before we came to Christ, before we came to him and were saved by him. So yes, there is an awareness and a cognizance of that condemnation, but taking that condemnation and just putting it upon ourselves and wearing it upon our shoulders is not what we are to be doing as believers. We are to ask for forgiveness, confess our sin. When he forgives us, we sense that, that joy and that peace comes coming, knowing that we are saved and that we're forgiven by him. So we need to strive to live holy lives and love others, but as John has already stated, you know, when we do sin, because we are going to sin, that we have an advocate that stands on our behalf, and that is Jesus Christ, the righteous. As he says in 1 John 2, 1 through 2, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So for the one who has put their trust in Jesus Christ as a Savior, he has already bought us our forgiveness. And there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, as Paul writes in Romans 8, 1. And in the gospel of John chapter 3, verse 18, this comes right after, you know, the famous for God so loved the world passage, but we find there that anyone who does not believe in the name of the only Son of God is condemned, but whoever who believes in his name is not condemned. If you believed in his name, if you are truly saved, This condemnation is not for you now because you are in Christ. You are found in him. We do not stand before him condemned. Now, I won't deny that our thoughts of condemnation can be very strong. You know, it can make many feel like they need to punish themselves over and over and over again. And that would be diminishing God's forgiveness towards us through Christ Jesus. But all the praise and glory to the Father who bought us out of our condemnation through his beloved Son, Jesus Christ, by his shed blood upon the cross. God is greater than our own thoughts of condemnation. For whenever our heart condemns us, it's what John writes, God 
is greater than our heart. And he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. This isn't me excusing your sin or my sin or saying that we need to ignore conviction, but it is telling us that we have one who is greater and has accomplished for us the removal of God's condemnation by his sacrificial death upon the cross and having received the death sentence for sin that we deserved. As I mentioned earlier, Romans 8.1, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Charles Spurgeon writes, sometimes our hearts condemn us, but in doing so, it gives a wrong verdict. And then we have the satisfaction of being able to take the case into a higher court For God is greater than our heart and knoweth all things. By God's attribute of his omniscient, that means he is all-knowing, he sees and knows all things, God knows the state of your soul. Our self-examination can be subject sometimes to our own flesh if we don't take it to God's word through prayer. I think it was a wise choice of the songs that were selected this morning that judge of the secrets of the hearts of men that we ask and we ask God to, uh, through his word, penetrate our heart, expose to us the things that we need to confess before him. He's the one that judges the secrets because he knows. God knows your heart. He knows if you're of the truth. He knows all things about you perfectly, completely, and fully. And the fact that God does, does know our heart is both a sobering and convicting thing, but it is also comforting in knowing that he sees our heart. He knows all about the sin, and that is convicting, as we read in Hebrews 4.13, and it gives us a healthy restraint and fear of God within our hearts, but it's also comforting because though he knows our sins, he nevertheless loves us and forgives us. 1 John 1.9, I think, is a great reminder, because if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 3, 5, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. He has addressed our sin problem in full, in full effectiveness and in all sufficiency. Christ has done that. So we can have confidence before him, because only he can remove our stain of sin, and it is only in Jesus that we can have confidence before God, that when we stand in judgment before God, not before ourselves, standing judgment, but before God that we will not be condemned if we truly are in Christ. Verse 21, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. We have a confidence standing in Christ. He is our confidence before God. He is holding us. It's not based upon our efforts or our own merits. It's because of his grace, and he is not going to fail. The more we gaze upon the Savior and fix our thoughts on him and what he has accomplished and the sufficiency of his salvation, the self-condemnation fades away to the background. It cannot accuse us when it strikes against the assurance of what Christ has done for the believer. Only in Christ can we be declared righteous and justified before a holy God. In Christ is where we want to be. In Christ is where we need to be. And I include here often what Paul would say in Philippians 3, where he's 
lamenting on some of the past that he's been part of, the religious experience that he had being a religious Jew and all the, the law and observances of the law that he was caught up in. And now he is able to say, you know, that is all rubbish to me. And now what is important is that I be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Jesus Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith. That is where we need to be found, that we can come confidently, not because we are righteous, but because we, in Christ, we are righteousness, the righteousness from God that he has given to us through faith in Jesus Christ. I'm coming back to verse 21 now in verse 22 of 1 John. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And with whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. The Greek word that John uses for confidence here in verse 21 means a frankness of speech. And just honesty, unreserved boldness in speech. And we have confidence to speak to God and to address him specifically in prayer because we are coming to him and we usually attach this in the end of every prayer. We come to him in Jesus' name, praying what Jesus would pray for. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us come then with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And it is accomplished that we can come confidently before him because Christ stands in as our mediator for the one who is in Christ. He is our mediator unto God the Father. That is how we can come confidently before God. And it's not cloaked in condemnation, but rather being justified before God in Christ because of his redeeming sacrifice, because of that forgiveness, that removal of sin, that being imputed to Christ and his righteousness now upon us. Verse 22, we don't want to misunderstand this when John says, for whatever we ask, I don't think this is John suddenly launching into his pitch for the prosperity gospel here. We should certainly make it or we could, we could certainly make it that if we detach this verse from the rest of the letter or from the rest of the Bible, and that tends to be how the prosperity gospel propagates is by you know cherry-picking what we like. But if we are praying with the right heart, then we are going to pray whatever is in the will of God and for the glory of God and whatever it is to advance the work of God and His kingdom. That is what it is to pray in God's will. Whatever we ask, we receive from Him, and we always need to apply that filter of according to the will of God. And God answers our prayers because we are His children, and that is just another distinguishing mark of the assurance of salvation. So the assurance is that we see that we are able to love like He loves because His love was, is within us. And then the second distinguishing mark is that we have him hearing us in our prayers, that we have what we ask of the Father when we pray in his will. I see this as a validation of our salvation, that he hears and answers our prayer. Matthew seven eleven. if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? And I would say another component here to this assurance that we can love the way that he loves, not perfectly the way he is, but we love consistently the way he loves. We have our prayers answered in accordance with his will, and then we are able to obey his commands, obey his will. And obedience from the heart, and I think that is seen in verse 22, 
when you see that word keep. And if you look at a definition of keep, the, the Greek definition of this word, it's to keep guard or a watchful eye over something. Whatever we ask from whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep. I think that's a good qualifier for us. We keep his commands and do what pleases him. So we keep a watchful eye on his word, knowing what his word tells us and what we are commanded to do. But then the other qualifier is we do it. We do what pleases him. That we keep doing the things that please him. And what is pleasing in his sight is his commandments. And it doesn't mean that we are going to keep them perfectly If we really are loving God, though, as we should, then we want to know more about Him. We go into His Word to seek to know more of Him and find out what pleases God in our lives, but we also learn there what displeases God. But because we love Him, we want to know more of Him. We want to know what His holiness is, His desire for our lives, and that is to be holy as He is holy. That's that making us more and more Christ-like. And so what is spawned out of this love for Him is a desire to keep all that he has commanded us. You could say that love is the engine that drives our obedience. That love is the engine that drives our obedience. Turn to John chapter 14. We've been in the gospel a lot of John. John chapter 14, we're going to look at some verses there. Look at verse 15. If you love me, you will, what, keep my commandments. Now look at verse 21 now, that same chapter, John 14, 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, there's that qualifying word again, that keeps a watchful eye over them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. One more in that same chapter. Look at verse 23 now, John 14. Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Wonderful truths from God's word. And it is this agape love that compels us and propels us to obey the word of God and his commandments. In verse 23 of 1 John 3, and this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son Jesus Christ and love one another just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him, and by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. And the commandments to follow for us and anyone is to believe in Jesus Christ. We think of the main qualifier here, to be able to love like him, to be able to follow his commandments, is that it starts first with faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And then what should manifest is the ability to love one another, which is also his command. And that is now possible in salvation because now we have the helper, we have the Holy Spirit helping us to love in this way. In the Gospel of Luke where the scribe is trying to get Jesus to say something wrong and try to accuse him and find fault in what he's doing. Look at Luke 10, 25 through 28. Luke 10. The scribes were basically the lawyers of New Testament times. 
You know how they like to pick apart testimonies and stuff and search for the right question that is going to trip one up. We see them continually trying to do this with Jesus, and I say try, and I put the emphasis on that. Luke 10, 25 through 28, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. The scribe's answer was correct. Jesus said, Do this and you will live. Now, I don't know whether the scribe went out and did this, um, but that was the part that he had to do. The doing part was the key. The commandment. To believe in the name Jesus Christ is authenticated by heeding the command to love, by doing it. And it comes full circle back to what Ray taught last week with verse 18. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. So if you put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ and it is a saving faith, then what should be seen in you is love. That salvation is authenticated by this love. And we can say we love, love, love all day long. We cannot put our own spin on love and try to redefine it as we see the world so often doing today. You see domestic abusers say that they murder their spouses because of love, and that is definitely not the right kind of love. Scripture is very clear what agape love looks like and what it acts like. And saying we believe in Christ, but how will they know if we truly believe if there isn't evidence and that evidence is love? So why aren't all the other commandments listed here, though? Because he says it plural. He says whoever keeps his commandments abide in God, abides in God. But what we're told is that we're to love, and that seems to be the most important thing here. But why not uh, include things like about not murdering, you know, we find that in the Ten Commandments. Why not uh, the one about not committing adultery or not coveting uh, another neighbor's wife and, and things like not committing adultery? Why don't we see those listed here as the list of commandments were to follow? And I think in context, that is certainly implied. You know, we look at the context of the chapter and the book and, and within the entire Bible, and we know that we have all these commandments for us that we are supposed to adhere to. But Reading verse 24, when he says, Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him, and by this we know that he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he has given us, starts with faith in Jesus Christ, and then we have his Spirit within us that then is able to produce this love within us. And I've heard it said more than once by various commentators, and I've kind of arrived at this conclusion myself, is that if you are a Christian, it is evidenced by the way you are loving God and others, then you are not going to want to murder them. You are not going to want to commit adultery. You are not going to want to covet. You are not going to want to lie if you have this love and you are loving in this way. And that love is had by His presence. Obedience is had by His presence within us, which is the Holy Spirit. Keeping His commandments should come naturally to the believer when we are truly abiding in Him. And that is looking to Him as the source for our love, for him and, and then also for others. If we are in him, he is in us. It's that mutual abiding, that we abide in him, that means that he is also in us, and that is by his Holy Spirit, and that is how we know. You love that individual that is most difficult to love, not because of how they treat you, 
they not might, might not be the easiest person to be around and you realize that it is not your power that you are loving them by, but it is by his power. You know, Jody probably didn't know she was going to be trapped in this perpetual agape love test when she married me 30 years ago, but that's maybe how it is for her. Maybe I'm her test of agape love. But you know that God has given you the strength to love in this way because his spirit is in you and thus he is in you. He is abiding in you and Jesus is in you. And in keeping his commandments, we are abiding in him and he is abiding in us. If we want to have assurances that we are of him, look at your love. Look at your obedience to his commands and evaluate what that looks like. Is it just a thought that crosses your mind? Like, oh, well, I I love everybody because I'm a Christian. Or can you see it in the way that you are loving others? And not just using as a general term, as we so often do. It's very cliche as a Christian to say that we love everybody. But how is it on the individual level? What we looked at there. Is it just a thought that I love them, but are you actually doing it? Are you desiring to be immersed in God's truth, to be sanctified in it? So please don't walk away from this message saying, well, Owen assured my heart that I am saved. But the assurance must come from God. Romans eight sixteen, Paul says, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. If you're looking to me, I can be tempted to give you false assurance, like I had said before was a temptation of mine. But look to his truth to confirm this in you. Pray and ask for God's revealing light to bring to bear on your heart that you are either His or you are not. And if you are not, that He would show you mercy and save you from His condemnation. Seek His forgiveness. Confess your sin before Him and repent. Turn away from its hold on you and look into the loving face of Jesus Christ who gave His life for you so that you might love as He loves. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning. We thank you, God, that we can look to your word for the assurances that we need as your children to know that we are in you and you are in us. God, I pray that you would just, by your spirit, um, give us this assurance if we are of you, and Lord, by your drawing power on the hearts and the conviction that you put on, on us that those who do not know you, God, would in some way through what has been spoken here uh, that they would be drawn to you, Lord, that their hearts would be convicted of sin and that they would... I have a desire to confess and repent and live their life for you. And I pray, God, that you would just help us to find just great joy and great uh, hope in what we read in your word today. And knowing that we are your children, God, help us to love those that are hard to love and that we can be assured when we are able to love them in spite of these things that, that we are of you, Lord. Thank you for your answer to our prayers and that being another thing that we can have that assurance and knowing that you hear us and that you answer us and that we are even able to follow your commands and we are able to strive for holiness and be conformed more into the image of Christ. There yet another assurance for us, God, that we find in your word. Thank you for your truth to us and help these things come to bear on us, Lord, to be changed by them and to keep your commandments and to do what you tell us. Help us express our love through obedience to you. In Jesus' name, amen.